And today I'll be reading um, the sermon passage from Mark 8, starting at 34, reading to chapter 9, verse 13. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me um, and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed for them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see what the kingdom of God has come with power. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. Then he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, Why did the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. Thanks, Michelle. It would be great to keep your Bible open as we work our way through this passage. Uh, Just as a brief heads up, uh, I'll spend sort of 90% of our time in three verses and about 10% of time uh, in the second half. But uh, let me pray as we get into this passage. Dear Lord, I pray as we reflect on your word now that I might speak faithfully to it, that your word might be a lamp to our path and a lamp to our, a light to our path and a lamp to our feet. Amen. As a general theme, uh, we seek pleasure and avoid pain. And and I mean pleasure broadly, you know, things that make us happy, things that give us a sense of purpose and meaning, things that help us to feel loved and respected. Uh, And in our context, uh, those values are often promoted in a way that's very individualistic, very consumeristic and often very imminent. Uh, There's not a lot of encouragement uh, to persevere. You know, if you don't like your job or if you don't like your relationship, well, that's okay. I'm sure you can find a better one. Uh, So for the most part, we seek pleasure and avoid pain, but that's not always true. And so, for example, there are plenty of times where parenting is not pleasurable uh, and there is plenty of pain. 
Uh, There's pain, obviously physical pain, uh, if you're the one giving birth. Uh, There's psychological pain as you live with sleep deprivation. And sometimes there's the the pain of lost opportunities. We come to terms with the realities of how being a parent might impact our career opportunities or our freedom to pursue other things we love, you know, like uh, golf or skydiving or travel. Uh, But it's worth it because even though we are generally short-sighted, there are some things that are so big and so good and so important that even we can see into the distance and see the value of sacrifice and perseverance. And in that sense, at its best, it no longer feels like a sacrifice because we can see an even better future. So for the right cause, we are willing to sacrifice a lot in this present life. Uh, But the challenge of this passage is, are we willing to sacrifice in this life for the sake of Christ and for the sake of our eternity? Uh, The book of Mark uh, opens with this declaration, the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. And pretty much every word since has been asking the question, do you see? Uh, Not just seeing in terms of the miracles or not just seeing Jesus as a wise teacher, but seeing Jesus as the one, uh, the one who God had promised all the way through the Old Testament, the one who can forgive sins, uh, the one who is eternal the one who is worthy of all glory and honour and praise, and the one who has the power to welcome us into his kingdom or to turn us away. Now, so far in the book of Mark, even the disciples have struggled to see, and they've seen uh, more than anyone, uh, which is part of what makes last week's passage such a big deal. Uh, Because finally... Uh, Peter does actually see. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. So that's a great declaration moment, but we know that that moment doesn't last very long because as soon as Jesus describes what the Messiah has come to do, it all becomes a bit much. You know, the idea that the Messiah must suffer and die was inconceivable. Uh, But even more inconceivable, I'm not actually sure if there is something more inconceivable than inconceivable, but even more inconceivable is the idea that he would then rise again from the dead physically three days later. And, And all of this is important because if we don't genuinely see and perceive who Jesus is, then we're never going to understand or hear what we need to do next. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. Uh, Denying ourselves is the same idea as repenting and neither have a particularly positive association in our culture. Uh, If the greatest moral good is to be authentic and true to our natural desires, then self-denial becomes immoral Uh, and the idea of repenting becomes offensive. Why do I need to repent for something when I haven't done anything wrong? Uh, That's the narrative 
of our time. Uh, But Jesus is saying here, if you're going to be my disciple, then it's going to involve a fundamental shift in the way that we view ourselves, the way we view our world. Because at the heart of it, denying ourselves is a shift of our allegiance. Uh, So my default allegiance is to me, uh, which doesn't mean I don't play nicely with others. Uh, I might be a very generous person uh, financially, relationally, uh, for the good of humanity, but just as easily I might not. Uh, I'm in control, it's my life, and I decide the terms. Uh, When we deny ourselves and become a disciple of Christ... We repent of that way of thinking and we hand over our perceived right uh, to self, for self-determination. We hand over control to the God who created us. Uh, we don't love the idea of self-denial, but in our more self-serving moments, we can see how this could still work out in our favour. You know, if Jesus is kind of like Google Maps then you know, he can help us sort of duck and weave you know, through all the, the traffic and avoid all the you know, red lights of, of life and all that, that sort of pain and frustration. And you know, he can guide us through all, all the best bits, you know, kind of all the, the best locations, the, the best things to see and experience. You know, more pleasure, uh, less pain, uh, low carbon emissions. And at the end, we get delivered safely home. I think that's the offer that we want to hear. Uh, if we pick and choose our you know, reading of the Bible carefully, uh, that is the offer we can hear. But the real offer, uh, the seeing and perceiving offer, is a whole lot more confronting. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Jesus has already said that he's going to die and here we get a glimpse of how he is going to die and it's going to be excruciatingly painful and it's going to be humiliating and Jesus says, follow me. As a marketing pitch, uh, that's not a great pitch. Uh, But Jesus is is not just saying we should seek out pain as if pain is something intrinsically good. He's saying, no, you follow me, but if you do follow me, there will be pain. Because inevitably, as we follow Christ, we challenge the cultural status quo, and that makes us dangerous. And dangerous things need to be isolated and discredited and removed. Now, even in our safe Australian context, we see examples like Israel Salah uh, and Andrew Thorburn more recently. Uh, And the unspoken message is, if you stand up for Christ, this could happen to you. And so the temptation is just to keep our head down. Uh, The other reaction, and this isn't in the passage, but I do think it's worth acknowledging, is to go to the other extreme, where we become so defensive and so angry at the values of our culture uh, that we feel we have this moral duty to fight back. Uh, We do it in the name of Christ. We often do it for the sake of our children. But I think we also often do it at the expense of our obedience to Christ, who calls us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute you. 
you know, if we're going to be consistent in, our, in who we are for Christ, then we, we do want to stand up against wrong things, but how we stand up also matters. So denying ourselves and taking up our cross is going to be costly, but it's worth it. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Now, so we can save our life if we're willing to conform to our culture, but it will come at the cost of our eternal salvation because it's not possible uh, to follow the values of our culture and the world and to be who we are called to be in Christ. Uh, but the opposite is also true. That if we're willing to count the cost now, then God has in store an amazing future. And so we have a choice, uh, comfort and condemnation or the cross and salvation. Uh, that's the pain side of the equation, but it doesn't get any easier when we look at the pleasure side. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Now, avoiding pain is a powerful motivator, but perhaps even more powerful is the temptation of pleasure. And so often we buy into this lie that this world and this life will satisfy and fulfil everything. If you have just a little bit more, uh, your life will be complete. And that's what the world is constantly offering us. Uh, sometimes the more uh, is the more you know, imminent you know, pleasures of life. You know, I just want the freedom to have fun, to do what I want, to be with who I want, to travel where I want, without having to you know, constantly think about, you know, is this a godly, wise choice? Uh, the whole world in that moment might be pretty small, uh, but in that moment, those pleasures can feel like everything. Uh, for someone else, the whole world is success and that sense of significance and respect and influence that comes with success. Uh, and the freedom uh, that comes with success. And they're willing to sacrifice a lot in the present for that success. Uh, perhaps for others, gaining the whole world is their family. And everything, including their work choices, is oriented around their time together and their shared life experience. And the moral of all of this isn't that fun is bad or success is bad or family is bad. Uh, but they become bad when they become our whole world at the expense of Christ. And who in their right mind would trade even the most spectacular success for their soul? Uh, that part of us that continues into eternity, uh, that will either be redeemed or condemned forever. Uh, this week, uh, I've been, I, I like Wimbledon. I, I don't watch a whole lot of sport, but I do watch tennis. Uh, this week, uh, Carlos Alcaraz won Wimbledon against Djokovic. Uh, it was five sets. It finished at four in the morning, and uh, it was long. Uh, but, gee, it was, it was, it was a great game. Um, but, yeah, when you look at that sort of moment, yeah, he's a 20-year-old, uh, and he has just won Wimbledon. You know, that's a kind of a gaining the whole world kind of moment. You know, that's a success that, yeah, we can't even begin to imagine in, in tennis or, or, or any other sport. Uh, but for him, if he had the choice 
between that and eternal life, even winning Wimbledon, uh, surely that would be a pretty easy choice. And yet we're potentially willing to trade our soul or even the souls of our family for a whole lot less. And I think we're willing to do that for at least two reasons. I think, firstly, because we're not totally convinced they are the options before us. Uh, Either we're not convinced that there really is anything beyond the present or we don't really think that God is going to follow through with these verses. Uh, So we're trusting... Uh, if that's our way of thinking, that God is kind of like our parenting. Uh, When our kids were younger, there was an awful lot of we're counting to three, uh, lots of threats about losing screen time, uh, lots of threats about sitting on the stairs, um, but not a whole lot of follow-through. You know, it would go from you're losing screen time for a month to a week to, okay, look, you just can't have it for 20 minutes. Uh, And I think sometimes we we think God has the same approach, that that he he threatens a lot, but he's not really going to follow through. Uh, The difference between seeing and perceiving is recognising that God is serious, uh, that he really wants us to devote our life to him, that there are lots of good things along the way. But when it comes down to those moments of choosing to seek pleasure and avoiding pain, we choose to put Christ first. And he becomes our first source of pleasure. And standing up for Christ and seeing him honoured is worth the pain. And that's a pretty confronting message Uh, But Jesus hasn't finished. If you're feeling a little exhausted already, uh, he's still got more to say. He, He wants to drive this point home one more time. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Now, we talk about the things we love all the time. So if you're passionate about caring about the planet or if you're a vegetarian, perhaps, or even if you just love surfing, uh, then then you talk about it with with a sense of enthusiasm. And, you know, not only do you care, you want other people to care and you want to convince them why they should care. And yet so often we struggle to talk about Christ. And in our heart of hearts, for some and at times... We know it's because we are ashamed. Uh, often it starts with that inner shame. I feel you know, like I'm, I'm following Jesus, but I'm just following myth and superstition. Or you know, how can I possibly believe in a God that allows all this suffering in the world? And they're the feelings that are already going on inside for us. And then you know, when that's challenged by the world around us, then that comes out in our behaviour. You know, we don't want to stand up and we don't want to stand out because we're struggling perhaps with our own conviction. We don't want to be ridiculed or belittled. Uh, we want to be respected by the people around us. And so it's just easier and safer to say nothing. And we try to blend in with the adulterous and sinful generation around us. And sometimes you know, people just sort of look at us and they might go, you're a nice person or you're a conservative person. But, but we no longer stand out as a Christian. And if that's us, then the warning here is the same as all those other warnings. If we're ashamed of Christ, then the Son of Man will be ashamed of us. 
The language of Son of Man comes from Daniel 7, from that first reading that we had. So if the word Messiah connects most deeply with the humanity of Jesus and, and him fulfilling that kingly role of the Old Testament, then the Son of Man connects most deeply with his divine nature. Uh, he is the one who is eternal. He's the one who's been given all authority over the nations. And he is the one who represents humanity to the Father. Now, it is worth acknowledging as we talk about being ashamed, but you know, all, all ways that we sin, uh, that being ashamed is not the unforgivable sin. Uh, we see that when, with Peter. You know, he, for everything that he knows, he still denies uh, Jesus three times. Uh, so if we're living with the shame of being ashamed, then we need to bring that before God. Uh, and when we confess and when we ask for forgiveness, uh, we know that we will be forgiven because Christ has died on the cross for us to deal with that sin, uh, to deal with all of our sin, uh, past, present and future, uh, which shouldn't make us complacent, but it should bring us to a pace of peace and a place of thankfulness. Uh, now, I am sorry that we don't have time to spend more you know, time in that back half of our passage, what we traditionally call the transfiguration. But, but I do want to make uh, one really brief comment. Uh, Jesus has put some pretty overwhelming truths in front of us, you know, truths that come at a real cost. This is a life-changing truth. And so, you know, as we recognise that, you know, as we ask the question, am I ready for this? Uh, then it's helpful that we have this moment in time when, you know, Jesus reminds us that this is not just him saying it, but his father endorsing it. You know, if you're about to buy a 50 grand car, then you want to really make sure uh, that it's a good car. Uh, if we're going to commit to this type of sacrifice, then we want to be confident and sure that Jesus really is who he says he is. And so that confidence comes in this moment, in this uh, as Jesus stands with Elijah and Moses, and perhaps most significantly of all, as the Father declares, this is my son, whom I love, listen to him. And so for Peter and James and John who are there, who've heard everything about what it means to take up their cross and follow him, uh, this is this great confirmation moment. Uh, but what about us? Uh, are we convinced... Uh, and so deeply convinced that we are ready to take up our cross? Are we willing to sacrifice our desire for instant gratification, perhaps even, you know, that persevering gratification uh, for something even better, for something eternal? Now, if our life is like a house, if you've been around churches, you would have heard this illustration before. If our life is like a house, are we willing to hand over the keys to the whole house? Now, I suspect for all of us, there are some rooms we're pretty happy to hand over. Uh, it's not too confronting. It's not too challenging. Uh, but there are some things in our life, uh, little rooms in our house, uh, that we would prefer to keep locked away. Uh, we don't necessarily even think they're healthy and good. We just want to keep hold of them. And Jesus says, if, if you're going to follow me, uh, you can't just hand over the convenient bits. Uh, that You've got to hand over the whole house. And actually, when he brings us to the point of seeing and actually perceiving, he also brings us to the point of being willing. Uh, that doesn't make it easy, but even then, 
God's Spirit works in us and he teaches us how to let go. So whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Amen.